Hello, welcome to Solomon's Temple. This episode, I wanted to go over The Gay Science by Friedrich Nietzsche. I know all you middle schoolers out there are getting ideas and are giggling, and I don't approve of that type of attitude. This is a very powerful read. The opening lines are, When I contemplate men with benevolence or with an evil eye, I always find them concerned with a single task. All of them, and every one of them in particular, to do what is good for the preservation of the human race, not from any feeling of love for the race, but merely because nothing in them is older, stronger, inexorable, and unconquerable than this instinct. Because this instinct constitutes the essence of our species, our herd. It is easy enough to divide our neighbors quickly, with the usual myopia, from a mere five paces away, into useful and harmful good and evil men, but in any large-scale accounting, when we reflect on the whole a little longer, we become suspicious of this neat division and finally abandon it. Even the most harmful man may really be the most useful when it comes to the preservation of the species, for he nurtures either in himself or in others, through his effects, instincts without which humanity would long have become feeble or rotten. Hatred, the mischievous delight in the misfortune of others, the lust to rob and dominate, and whatever else is called evil belongs to the most amazing economy of the preservation of the species. With this being said, there's sort of a, a, a comeback around to itself. What is evil is good in some other way. What is good is evil in another way. Almost as if when we contain within ourselves a, a certain matter of which, an attitude of which we have a, a pride into it and of ourselves that sort of define who we think we are and what is what we think is good for ourselves. It, it could just be devastating. Like he is saying, like even, even these wicked things... It's sort of a projection from outside, but in the end, these people think that they are doing what is best for themselves, doing what is best for the whole of themselves. I feel like when people in general are acting in accordance with their highest good, then they're committing to, you know, what is good for either the, the herd or the species. It could just be nationalism, if we're going to be quite frank about it. You know, what is good for my group under the flag, my people, my culture, those that speak my language, you know, whether metaphorically or not, sort, sort of how, how that is. We need the wicked, those people that lust, you know. There's forces that are created that create the lust to steal. There are forces created that are designed to kill other people for the betterment of a nation. We call this the army. There's this eternal transaction that's inherently unfair. We call that capital. And even neglecting people's feelings uh, is considered a good thing. Just abusing others sometimes is, is perfectly okay. Gaslighting, rendering people's reality not a reality. Even these wicked things, they serve a basis for the preservation of something. It could just be a worldview. It's a tendency in the philosophical problem to deny someone, say, no, it is not this. That is not real, therefore, it's not true. But usually it's just you don't understand, therefore it's not true. But that's just a whole other discussion. And of course, we prey on people's ignorance. I mean, there's plenty of traps being set for people so so that there's an easier uh, ascent into, you know, better position and power if, if people are fumbling and tripping all over themselves and wasting their time and wasting their money and wasting their minds, then, you know, someone else is going to come in and reap the benefits of, what you know, whatever was forsaken on anyone else's end. And I think even bad values are, are being thrown out there as a detriment, but not a detriment to everybody, but with sort of this evil intent in order to create this, uh, well, maybe it's just trimming the hedges. It's just um, weeding people out. And it would be funny to view ourselves in a 
holistic sense being that we just, he's saying to laugh, laugh, laugh out of the whole truth. What does this mean? To do what even the best so far lacked sufficient sense for the truth, and the most gifted had too little genius for that. Almost as if, like, there's been just so many people throughout the ages, perhaps, that just can't arrive at this sort of cosmic giggle that's being presented. Whether, you know, it's within Stoicism, Christianity, even the, the Eastern philosophical traditions, the interplay of politics, the uh, scholarly interpretations of Frederick Nietzsche himself. These things, coming from a place as an interpreter, and me standing here before the microphone speaking into it, do I know of this eternal giggle? Sh should it be that it's so absurd that we owe a grit of, of gratitude and reverence to our detractors and to the fools that present mockery, disingenuousness, outright alienation, and even violence? He says the comedy of existence has not become conscience of itself. So it's almost like he's equivocating ourselves with the eternal comedy of existence, the whole truth, that we're, we aren't ourselves, we're not conscious of what we are and we're the eternal comedy. But we can't let that giggle, we can't feel that giggle eternally, you know. And that's what he's trying to promote is this, this place of coming into the whole, this this cosmic consciousness, perhaps, that sees the the funny, the funniness of all this, maybe the underside of, of the anger and the sadness that might come out of that. On the other side, there's always that, that infinite jest that's waiting for it. He equates the age of tragedy with religion. They teach remorse and religious wars. He goes on to say that these ethical systems that we have created, we have sort of lost our primal natures in. The creation of them has created a different kind of hero, but a hero that is laughed at from the outside. That being on the outside of this stuff is weird. There is no denying that in the long run, every one of these great teachers of a purpose was vanquished by laughter, reason, and nature. The short tragedy always gave way again and returned into the eternal comedy of existence and, quote, the waves of uncomfortable laughter, to cite Aeschylus, must in the end overwhelm even the greatest of these tragedians. And don't we become very indignant when we're laughed at? But there's always someone being laughed at. There's always sort of a but of this sort of eternal comedy because of these heroes that want to stand out and say something because they have this ethical, moral, or just a righteous system of, of viewing that creates, in his view, something unnatural, something to be kind of mocked and laughed at, whether it's really actually, you know, a beneficial to the species or not, it still gets laughed at anyways, because it presents itself as this sort of uh, moralistic framework. Because he goes on to say that all, all of these things promote this betterment, that's kind of the purpose thereof, you know, otherwise it wouldn't have happened, but it doesn't mean that these sort of, what he views as tragedians, the moralists that try to come up and be a hero unto everything, he views them as uh, worthy of being laughed at and mocked. But he does point out that there's a vital capacity in our minds and in our souls that there needs to be an affirmation, a fulfillment of I know what my existence conditions are. I have to believe and to know why I exist. I have to exist 
for certain things and I have to sort of try to flourish within how I, I reason in life, what my reasons are. Otherwise, I'm severely uncomfortable and I feel like everything's laughing at me. And it is. It always will be. So yeah, and Nietzsche is rallying around this sort of humor thing where one's smiling, one isn't. You know, the other side of the tapestry is is always there when you sew something else. There's there's this iceberg, so to speak. You know, there's the top part and then there's this iceberg. There's all sorts of other things that go into existence that haven't surfaced. And there's always an underside to everything that hasn't, you know, formed its conscious as a whole. So there'll surely be more, you know, written material about what we've um, already drummed up. There's so many different kinds of gestures in, in life, I feel like. He says at the end, Do you understand this new law of ebb and flood? There is a time for us too. Ebb and flood. That maybe even the, the cretins, the people that are totally swept under the stairs, you know, it's even they have something to say about life that has a sense of humor to it, that wants to get at the ridiculous notions that are popularized or being presented as heroic. There's always someone sort of mocking and shrouding your, uh, your presence. What's really weird is that the other day I was thinking about the, maybe the tragedy of me dying and thinking about how people, you know, they, they look at it, they go, oh, how sad, but just rationally just kind of get on with it the following day as if it, you know, it, it didn't happen, as if it didn't matter. And it matters, but also I had this thought, I want you to like spray paint, you know, draw up, drink alcohol and pee on my grave and, and just you know, just just make hell out of my gravesite. And I don't want a tombstone. I just almost want to get like buried by this tree or something like right next to this tree and kind of haunt its root system or whatever. I don't know. I just had this weird thought like just go in the other way. Don't you know, don't even um, do that typical thing where like you think you have to do is just to make hell out of the fact that I even attempted to be what I thought I was, you know, and just like uh, don't think to do what you typically do. Like do the underside of that thing. Just like totally mock me, just make fun of, and even be, maybe just, just don't be tragic about it. Almost just be happy, just be really happy at the sight of my death. But don't even pay respects to it, just, maybe you do respect me, but just don't even respect me, just say, just screw you, you know, just, and have it not even matter. I don't, it was a weird sort of thought, but that's what I was thinking, like, just be a mongrel, and just be ill, in order to pay homage to the fact that I'm dead and that you knew me or something. I don't know. It was very weird. In the second part here, he talks about an intellectual conscience. Now, he's saying that a great majority of people lack an intellectual conscience, that they are busy sort of weighing out their thoughts, saying, well, this appears to be evil. The other part of my conscience says, this is good. And they have a sort of underlying certainty. But if you have an intellectual conscience, he says you feel more lonely. Even in the most densely populated cities, you feel as though you're in a desert. Because everybody's looking at you with strange eyes and goes right on handling their scales, calling this good and evil. Nobody even blushes when you intimate that their weights are underweight. Nor do people feel outraged. They merely laugh at your doubts. The great majority of people do not consider it contemptible to believe this or that and to live accordingly without first having given themselves an account of the final and most certain reasons pro and con, and without even troubling themselves about such reasons afterwards. 
So for the intellectual conscience, he's accounting for the deeper ambiguities, the more uncertain aspects when you go deeper, that when you do this, you start craving certainty, but realizing that there's a sort of profound hatred for reason. Some things don't require that you reason through them and bring them to their foundation. And he, he thinks that uh, in the face of all this complexity and ambiguity and uncertainty and other-sidedness that results as this sort of folly and mania and lack of reasons that the person that goes on to question these things is seen as this funny little man amusing, but he sees the hatred of questioning and also the questioner of such reality as this sort of feeling, this human feeling that happens and that is a result of simply being a part of being human. And he says that that's his type of injustice, like it's an injustice brought on by the eternal comedy. And he's talking of scales and injustice because uh, Nietzsche was a Libra. <laughs> There's been a lot of uh, good writers philosophically that have been Libra. And of course, um, philosophy invented law and law is sort of based on the, the woman with the blindfold holding the scales and weighing things out. He's sort of mocking almost his own essence, his uh, weighing out the reasons pro, con, that is good, that is that is evil, why are they, because, and, you know, we need to rest assured on these things. Sometimes it's a matter of, uh, you know, self-preservation, preservation of the species, whether it be good or not, but he is seeing the sort of giggle there that there's an ambiguity to be met. There's the questioner and the one that laughs at those that question themselves. Furthermore, he goes on to say that all ordered societies put the passions to sleep. As a result being, there's again more comparison, contradictions being brought up, daring, untried, and compelling opinions put up against the status quo opinion, model against model. He says that the most wicked of men are those that are the most daring and have brought themselves to the fore to challenge what there is, and that these people have done the most to advance societies. And these people, of course, are viewed as an outsider to be, you know, the wicked ones or the wrong party or, you know, just an, an enemy. When you break down these pious boundaries that we fear, if we break them, they will wreak havoc upon us. The new moral ground or the new view that is brought into the discussion as a collective value system is always seen as evil, that the one that is existing is the one that preserves the species. Maybe they are out to serve the same sort of end, the preservation of the species, only done in a different functional way. Some means of self-preservation is being careful and being skeptical of your neighbor and being conservative. Others, it's throw caution to the wind, be open and loving to your neighbor. It seems as though there's these different attitudes. Also, the way in which you dress. Some people like to dress with the marker of, I want, I want you to look at me with lustful eyes. Let's get it on. That's sort of, you know, you can see that because we have inst instructed ourselves that we need to hide all the dirt, that we can't let people look upon us like, ooh, I like that. I like what I'm seeing there. Some societies don't have that marker. There's not that old boundary to cross. There's things that aren't repressed so much where we have to cross that boundary. Clothes are a sort of technology, and they're introduced, they create evaluation. Like, we don't see a lot of the dirt most of the time. We don't have access to your, form, your physical form, that drive. What would preserve the species? 
keeping people safe from harm. If you're openly available physically and you marker that all the time, there's sort of an agreement that I'm not out to look for that. I'm not craving that because it's available already versus if it's repressed and once it becomes available, the, the, the scales get tipped way in the other direction and you have that opposite sort of reaction. You're not really protecting women, I suppose, at that point, because what's more important as a evaluation of good for the species as people being able to successfully mate or deal with their own affairs and partnerships, especially sexually, which would be the continuation of the species, what would be good for that? Maybe having that under control, maybe having that be a little more... Uh, less expedient for everybody, that maybe the liberal conceptions of having it wide open for everybody would be a detriment. So what do you do? Hide it? And then at that point, you have people wanting it more, and then that doesn't protect people. So if you open it up a little more, it becomes a little more commonplace. But maybe you should hide it. Maybe it shouldn't be common that you see that, that you see people in their naked form, that you would want to cover it up. But then you're then you're not being natural. Then you're sort of laughing at that eternal comedy. There's the eternal comedy thing again. Is like you become this hero and you uh, straighten yourself up with some technology. You uh, clothe yourself. Is that good? It seems like it is good in one way, but maybe not in another because you could just be laughed at by that comedy. It doesn't uh, actually help in the end. It creates as much evil as it does good at that point because you're just tipping scales back and forth again. It just keeps recurring like that. It ebbs and it, and it floods back the other way. In the next section, he goes on to sort of examine what do we have, how do we evaluate the perspectives on things that haven't been brought into light? Like there's, there's not a full history of love, avarice, envy, conscience, a pious respect for tradition, of cruelty, a history of law and punishment. He says that it's completely lacking. We haven't studied up on a lot of these things. We haven't examined everything like that. There's so much to deal with. And he says, what is known of the moral effects of different foods? Is there any philosophy of nutrition? It seems to me that the reproduction and transmission of imagery, you know, the technology of not only recording voice, but recording image images and transmitting them and multiplying them out to as many as we possibly can is sort of the um, pinnacle of a self-reflection it's a history unto itself. It, it it gives a point in time of an individual where they are and what they have dealt with, and they get other instances of another point in time in which other people have dealt with, is transmitted and seen. And then there's memes just going around, transmitting through this collective media. media. This is sort of the pouring out, I think, of what what Nietzsche is probably trying to get at here, that we there's a lack of comparative history collectively, but we're sort of seeing that in these micro crude bits. It helps us. It's good, but it doesn't but it's not this substantial, well-informed, thoroughly examined thing. And I don't know if it's my job to go through all that. I think it's more of a collective will. Frederick Nietzsche goes on to examine consciousness. He says consciousness is the latest development of the organic, and hence also what is most unfinished and unstrong. Consciousness gives rise to countless errors that lead an animal or man to perish sooner than necessary, exceeding destiny, as Homer puts it. If the conserving association of the instincts were not so very much more powerful, and if it did not serve on the whole as a regulator, humanity would have to perish of its misjudgments and its fantasies with open eyes, of its lack of thoroughness 
and its credulity. In short, of its consciousness, rather, without the former, humanity would have long disappeared. People are busy taking consciousness for granted, thinking that is the centerpiece and kernel of their existence, when really it is an overestimation and misunderstanding of consciousness. That there's a consequence to thinking that consciousness has sort of developed a little too fast, but it's always developing. Consciousness has is a sor sort of tyrannized by our pride in it. To sum this up, he puts it like this, To this day, the task of incorporating knowledge and making it instinctive is only beginning to dawn on the human eye, and is not yet clearly discernible. It is a task that is seen only by those who have comprehended that so far we have incorporated only our errors, and that all our consciousness relates to errors. I think it's very easy to take an immaculate sort of pride into where we are, into what we have achieved in our own consciousness, but knowing full well that there is so much more to it and there's so much more existing outside of it. It's a carving out of the error form of our consciousness that we never arrive outside of error. Just the expression of our will the expression of technology, this not realizable mechanism of what we're doing, that we are relying on newer methods of being in order to deal with what we have created and we're not conscious of until the error presents itself. And then we ameliorate that error with a sort of fixing of the error. We fix up what is wrong. It is born out of error. And then we arrive more readily into the now, which is a greater expanded view, this more whole vision of what we are going through, but then we are only a piece of that, and we are yet to arrive. We're always yet to arrive, so we're always bound up into a sort of error of some type. He says that life that is being cruel and inexorable against everything about us that is growing old and weak, and not only about us, life that is being without reverence for those who are dying who are wretched, who are ancient, constantly being a murderer. And yet old Moses said, thou shalt not kill. We are continuously shedding something that wants to die. I think we see a lot of the results of the, quote, progress we have made, what we have managed to manifest out of the shedding of death and the bringing into life. The, I think all these mutations lead to, to something good. It sheds what was once dying. I think everything is dying. Everything is on the way out. And as we go on, if we don't shed the on the way out and have this transcendental sense of of living and we can't make that happen in the way we want i think naturally the patterns of existence call for certain things to happen and then out of error they will happen but only out of less error and i think as it goes on and on eventually we'll just be as coordinated with nature as it is. There won't be a discordia sort of nature to everything. I think the scales won't be tipped. They'll not only be balanced, but we will be able to deal with the error of living so well that error will eventually become extinct. It's almost as if, you know, light, the light that shines and the physics that are, they're not in error, they just are. They exist in their certain way that just is. And I think in alignment with everything that is, you sort of gain this knowledge of God or something, or you become this thing. Maybe all of life is heading in 
trying to head into the consciousness of itself and in that way aligning to it becomes more and more free from error and what would it be to arrive into perfection like that is that the major preoccupation here is that the tyranny of consciousness is it wants to continuously try to murder itself in order to shed the death that's waiting out of error i don't know let's close this all out with the most epic utterance i have ever heard appearance is for me that which lives and is effective and goes so far in its self-mockery that it makes me feel that this is appearance and will of the wisp and a dance of spirits and nothing more that among all these dreamers i too know who know am dancing my dance that the knower is a means for prolonging the earthly dance and thus belongs to the masters of ceremony of existence and that the sublime consistency and interrelatedness of all knowledge perhaps is and will be the highest means to preserve the universality of dreaming and the mutual comprehension of all dreamers and thus also the continuation of the dream